Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations, their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features Dr. Mary Brandt, a professor of pediatric surgery at Tulane University in New Orleans, who delivered the John J. Conley Ethics and Philosophy Lecture during Clinical Congress 2022. Dr. Brandt focused on the ethics of belonging, what it means to belong, why belonging is professionally and ethically important, and how we can all become fierce guardians of belonging. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. It is indeed my honor to be here, but I do want to start by telling you a little bit about Dr. John J. Conley. He was born in Carnegie, Pennsylvania, outside of Pittsburgh, and graduated from the University of Pittsburgh with his BA and MD degrees. He began his training as a cardiologist, but was told he should change careers when he developed paroxysmal atrial tachycardia, since cardiology was too stressful. He went on to the non-stressful training of otorhinolaryngology, and then served for four years in the Army during World War II in active duty in the United States and in the Pacific. He brought his extensive wartime experience with reconstructive head and neck surgery back to New York City, where he treated patients as a professor of otorhinolaryngology at Columbia University. He was known as a gifted educator and academician with more than 300 publications and 13 textbooks. He was the first president of the American Head and Neck Society and held numerous other leadership positions in head and neck surgery. But he was also a poet, a jazz musician who played the clarinet and saxophone, an artist, an ethicist, and a philosopher. This photo is one of his 13 volumes of poetry, and this is one of his paintings. As you heard, he founded the John Conley Foundation for Ethics and Philosophy and Medicine in 1990 and was an active participant in the work of the foundation until his death in 1999. His friend, Dr. Eugene Myers, said this in his eulogy for Dr. Conley. Among the great legacies that John Conley left to all of us whose lives he touched is not only the benefit of his keen intellect and his ability to perform and teach surgical technique, but his philosophy that the physician should comport himself ethically and with dignity and humility. What a true honor it is to be here today as the John J. Conley lecturer and to talk to you about the ethics of belonging. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we are standing on the unceded land of the Kumeyaay people. One of the amazing gifts of being asked to give a lecture like this is that you're told you can talk about anything. So I decided to use this as an opportunity to think about and explore together the concept of belonging, a concept that's becoming more and more prominent in discussions of diversity, equity, and inclusion in surgery. Diversity is about data how many folks from marginalized groups we have in our departments and our practice groups. It's necessary but not sufficient. It's just the very beginning. Inclusion is a choice. 
Because once we bring someone into our organization, we have a choice as to whether or not we actually include them. Once they are included, how well they are able to meet their personal and professional goals is dependent on equity. And equity is about justice, doing what it takes to make the playing field level. But what about belonging? which is being recognized more and more as essential in creating a diverse, inclusive, and equitable culture. So the journey we'll take together today is to answer three questions. What does it mean to belong? Why is belonging professionally and ethically important? Then the final and I think most important question, how do we become creators and fierce guardians of belonging? So what does it mean to belong? I have a long background in liberal arts and a true love of words. And so the first place I went to in thinking about what the word belong means was to ask where did the word come from? It turns out it can be traced to the Proto-Indo-European language, the ancestral root of English, a language that was spoken about 6,000 years ago. 6,000 years ago, in 4,000 BCE, there were surgical healers. We don't know who they were, but we know they were taught their skills by someone, and then they went on to teach the next generation of healers who taught someone, and so on, until we arrive here, together, at this moment in time, preceded by our ancestors in surgery, as we become the ancestors of those who will follow us. In 4000 BCE, surgical healers worked by the light of the sun or the light of fire and torches. But by 500 BCE, about the time Proto-Indo-European evolved into Proto-Germanic, candles had been invented. And the word belong evolved to mean to long for. A little over a thousand years later, our surgical ancestors were able to work by the light of oil lamps. Proto-Germanic evolved into Old English, and belong still meant to long for. And then new meanings for the word belong were added as European culture and the English language evolved. In the 11th century, about the time of the First Crusades, the word took on the meaning of to have its proper place. A few centuries later, another meaning was added, to be owned by someone. And in addition to this profound new meaning, the idea that one could belong to a group was added as well. The first reference to the worshipful company of barbers, the guild that's recognized as the origin of surgeons in England, was around this time as well. The meanings of the word belong stayed the same as Middle English evolved to Modern English, which happened about 1619, the year the first slaves arrived in North America. And this is also around the time that surgical light for the first time was able to be focused using a flask of water and a candle this very early, very primitive lens was devised to peer into the oropharynx. 
In the 1750s, the first hospital was founded in the United States. And in 1780, the central draft fixed oil lamp was invented. And a new meaning of belong evolved to be the right person for the time and place. Anesthesia was first used in the 1840s, and that plus the surgical apprenticeships that were developed following the Civil War led to the birth of what we would call modern surgery in the United States. By the late 1800s, surgeons operated early in the morning in operating rooms built in the southeast corner of the top floor of the hospital. The light of the rising sun was reflected by mirrors onto the operating room table. And as for the meaning of the word belong, a sporting event, a competition, now belonged to the winner of the game. The American College of Surgeons was founded in 1913. Fluorescent and incandescent lights became commercially available just after the turn of the century, which meant 100 years ago, our surgical ancestors operated for the first time without natural or reflected light. Which brings us to today. Which of these meanings of belonging are applicable today? Or do we need a completely new way to think about what it means to belong? Another powerful way to think about the meaning of a word is to ask a different question. Because sometimes we land on the true meaning of a word by looking at its opposite. So I ask you to think for a minute. What's the opposite of belonging? The opposite of belonging is marginalization, which results in isolation. Why does this matter? Why is belonging professionally and ethically important? There aren't a lot of published data on belonging in surgery, but I'll share two papers that I think are important to start us off. The first looked at a group of medical students who thought they might want to go into orthopedic surgery. They knew about the classic stereotype of an orthopedic surgeon, but more importantly, when these stereotypes were reinforced during their clinical rotations, the result was impressive. Unless they were interested in sports, male, white, heterosexual, with a dominant personality, most likely a privileged background, and or had an athletic physical build, they felt they didn't belong. And here's the important point. Even though they had considered orthopedic surgery, even though they were doing sub-eyes in orthopedic surgery, this feeling of not belonging made them choose another specialty. The second paper I'll mention studied general surgery residents and asked whether a sense of belonging was correlated with well-being and with thoughts of leaving their residency program. The data showed that a sense of belonging not only decreased depression, emotional exhaustion, and depersonalization in surgery residents, it also correlated with fewer thoughts of leaving the residency. It seems intuitive for most of us, but these data confirm that surgery residents are more likely to leave if they feel they don't belong. So it's clear that belonging is important for recruitment and retention of future surgeons. But creating a culture of belonging also saves careers and even lives. We're all familiar with this definition of burnout. 
a syndrome conceptualized as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. It's characterized by three dimensions, feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion, increased mental distance from one's job or feelings of negativism or cynicism related to one's job, reduced professional efficacy. It's an accurate and important definition, but as I have worked in this area and thought about it more, I realize this definition is not as helpful as it could be in terms of what to do about the epidemic of burnout in our profession, because it doesn't help us understand how to prevent, diagnose, or treat burnout. A few years ago when I was thinking about this, how to deal with the epidemic of burnout, how to heal the healers, this image popped into my mind. We know that the spiral of systemic inflammatory response syndrome can be caused by a wide variety of insults, infection, trauma, burns, pancreatitis. I wondered, what if this model could help us better understand burnout too? And so I asked, what are the types of things that lead to burnout? And I came up with three broad categories. The first category is inadequate self-care. You'll note that I gave it the smallest circle. We all know we need to eat well, sleep more, exercise. So yes, it can lead to or exacerbate burnout, but I don't believe it's the most important category at all. The second big category I called failure to recover from injury. We are physically, emotionally, and spiritually injured by our work every day. Sometimes it's paper cuts. Sometimes it's a huge wound of losing a patient, a medical error, getting sued. But we rarely take or are given the time we need to recover from those injuries before we have to move on to help the next patient, attend the next meeting, or take the next call. We don't have the time to recover. The third category is moral distress, which can be personal, societal, and or institutional. And what do you call this? I started with surgeon distress syndrome, realized it really was physicians, realized it was more than physicians and thought about provider distress syndrome, but I never ever used the word provider. And so I landed on healer distress syndrome. And this idea, this model, which rang true for me, led me to a slightly different definition of burnout. That it is the in-stage manifestation of physical, emotional, and or spiritual inflammation that can be caused by a variety of insults. Now the understanding of inflammation, sepsis, and septic shock has evolved, but the current model used to explain these interactions may be even better than the previous model when applied to burnout. At the center is distress and the end stage of burnout. And there's still room for all the different etiologies like inadequate self-care, failure to recover from injury, and moral distress. But there's a fourth big category I missed when I was first thinking about what leads to burnout, a factor that may be the most important of all, and that's a sense of isolation or marginalization. This model also works well in looking at the progression from distress to end-stage burnout. The dysregulated host response of this model corresponds well 
to the breaches in professionalism, relationship failure, substance abuse, depression, and anxiety that are all signs of a healer in distress. And the life-threatening organ dysfunction correlates well with alcoholism, drug addiction, suicidality, and other causes of unnecessary and tragic loss of our colleagues. This model also guides us in how to treat this syndrome because as surgeons, we totally understand what to do with this. It's source control. We have to remove, decrease, or modify what started the process, which for belonging means removing, decreasing, or modifying the reasons someone feels marginalized or isolated, and then provide supportive care. So why is belonging professionally and ethically important? It's important in recruiting diverse future surgeons. It's also critically important to not lose current surgeons and surgeons in training. Surgeons who leave the field of surgery or worse, die by suicide. But in an even bigger picture, it's important because belonging is essential for each and every one of us to achieve meaning and what Maslow called self-actualization. To fulfill our desire as individuals and teams to become the most we can be. So that leads me to the last and I think most important question we'll consider today. How do we become creators and fierce guardians of belonging? As I thought about it, I realized the best way to approach this was to look at the things that disrupt belonging and the tools we need to prevent that disruption and then go on to create and protect belonging. So let me tell you about the five things I believe are the most responsible for disrupting a sense of belonging in surgical teams, and then share with you five tools to create and protect belonging. These are the five things I feel are the most responsible for disrupting belonging. The effects of social location, how we view the world in binary terms of us and them, thinking we belong to an institution instead of a group within the institution, how the surgical culture of individual achievement can inadvertently destroy a sense of belonging, and finally that power, especially malevolent power, can be particularly lethal for a sense of belonging. Let me start the discussion about the effects of social location with something to ponder. Marginalization means being on a margin. But for there to be a margin, there has to be a center. And when it comes to belonging, marginalization can best be understood by learning about social location. Each of us has a social location that is a composite of our social identities, our gender, race, sexual identity, etc. There is a perceived and totally constructed hierarchy of these social locations in every society. In the United States at this moment, the dominant social location is white, male, cisgendered, heterosexual, less than 60 years old, able-bodied, and born in the United States. I'm leaving it here without adding the other aspects of social location you can see in the outer ring of the diagram. Here's the main thing to learn from this concept, which is one of the most important factors contributing to the fragility of belonging. It affects what you can see. 
If you are in a dominant social location, you will struggle to see the location of others that are not equally dominant. Even though you think there's no way you are less than supportive of people that aren't like you. David Foster Wallace described this phenomenon in his amazing commencement address, This is Water. There are these three young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? The three young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other two and says, what the hell is water? The water of American society is white, male, heterosexual, cisgendered, young, and able-bodied. Let me give you a concrete example. And this is a true story. A well-respected surgical leader who I consider a friend and an ally of women in surgery stopped me one day. He was super excited about something he had just learned. He said to me, did you know that male physicians are introduced with their titles more often than women? I wasn't sure, but I started to pay attention, and it's true. Now, what I thought in response to his question was only since day one of medical school, but what I said was that's fantastic. Studies have shown that when a woman introduces a speaker, she will use titles over 95% of the time, regardless of the gender. But when a man introduces speakers, he will use the speaker's title 72% of the time if the speaker is a man, and only 49% of the time if it's a woman. You've already deduced, I'm sure, that each of us has numerous variables that make up our social location, which means that many of us, if not most of us, have multiple locations that are not dominant which is why we have to talk about intersectionality. In a nutshell, intersectionality is the idea that all marginalization is connected. It's not just additive. If you are a black woman, you are marginalized in a much more profound way than someone with one social location on the margins, such as a white woman or a black man. Let me float another thought by you in this context something I've only recently begun to think about. In one generation, we have seen a profound shift in who controls the finances and decision-making in hospitals, who is at the center of the culture that runs the medical system in our country. The history of why this has happened and why it's happened so fast will have to be the subject of other talks. But I am beginning to understand that all healers, regardless of our individual social locations, have been professionally and personally marginalized by this change. All of us are struggling to feel like we belong because of this shift in the locus of control and power, this change from physicians being at the center of decision-making in American hospitals to being relegated to the margins. The second implicit and sometimes explicit cause of marginalizing or othering people is hardwired in all of us because human beings see the world as a binary, us and them. This fact is a reality of human psychology and is one of the hardest things to overcome in creating a culture of belonging. Each of us 
has the hardwired ability to see someone and instantly assess if they are part of our tribe or not. Like our immune system, this is a warning system to protect us. And like our immune system, if it is allowed to blow up without the guardrails of culture, it becomes destructive. As Owen Eastwood put it in his great book, Belonging, the Ancient Code of Togetherness, we've ended up with a flawed them evaluation system that plays out in contemporary contexts which for most of us bear little relation to those they were evolutionarily built for. This dark side has had serious consequences from massive, breathtaking barbarity to countless pinpricks of microaggression, us versus them has produced oceans of pain. Confusing the place we work with, with the people we work with, is third on the list that disrupt belonging. For those who are not familiar with Simone's maxims of academic medicine, I highly recommend you read this now classic article. One of his most quoted maxims is this, the institution doesn't love you back. We talk about belonging to our institutions, but this is not how we are hardwired. We don't belong to institutions. We belong with people. As Simone explains, one must keep in mind that institutional relationships are really with persons who can and sometimes do love you back. For any one of us, good coworkers and solid leaders make what we value in the institution. Recognizing them, what they do for us, is far more important than loyalty to an impersonal institution. The fourth thing that can disrupt belonging is individualism. Western culture in general, and American culture specifically, is situated in a context, as Peter Block describes it, of scarcity, competition, and individualism. These powerful ways of being mean that we are pushed to want more, even when we have enough, and that, by, and that we view our work as a zero-sum game, which is defined by Merriam-Webster as a situation in which one person or group can win something only by causing another person or group to lose it. That alone is enough to disrupt belonging. But the most detrimental aspect of this dominant norm, at least when it comes to creating and guarding a sense of belonging, is that we feel individually and solely responsible for what we accomplish or don't accomplish. Because ultimately, the sole crushing message of individualism is that we're on our own. The last of the five things I think we need to understand when talking about disrupting belonging is power. The roads built by the emperors of Rome are still being used today. An example of how the social technology of power can lead to innovation and growth. But the power of the Roman Empire came at the expense of astounding oppression. And the imperial lust for power unquestionably contributed to the fall of Rome. Cecilia Ridgway, an expert on power and status, puts it like this. Status is everywhere. It's the water we all swim in. And the reason it's everywhere 
is that it's one of humanity's oldest and most powerful social technologies. A technology that has built civilizations, inspired revolutions, and spurred countless innovations, while also reinforcing some of our world's deepest inequalities and injustices. Power is part of our social structure, which means the challenge for those in power today is no different than before. How to use power and status for good to create innovative new technologies and teams without adding to inequalities and injustices. So to review the five important things that disrupt belonging are how social location makes it hard for those in dominant locations to see and understand everyone around them. How our hard wiring to see the world as us and them can get in the way of creating belonging. How we confuse the institution with the people in our institution. How the surgical culture of individual achievement can contribute to isolation. And finally, that power, especially malevolent, malevolent power, can thwart belonging. So what are the tools to fight back against this disruption, to create and protect belonging in our surgical teams? These are the five tools I'm going to talk about that I think will help us on the journey to create cultures of belonging. Asset framing, contextual creativity, storytelling, rituals, and measuring what matters. The first of the five tools I'll share with you is asset framing. This is a powerful and practical way to, perform, to promote belonging, which was developed by Trabian Shorters, who describes himself as a social entrepreneur. Asset framing is deceptively simple. At its core, it is choosing to reject our usual way of interpreting the world, which he calls deficit framing. It is hardwired human nature to first notice the risks and the problems in any situation, to look for problems and orient ourselves based on fear, similar to how we're hardwired to identify people as us or them. What asset framing does is push back against that hardwiring and challenge us to change the way we frame any individual or situation. It's simple in concept, but hard to master. It can be learned, but it takes practice. There are three steps in asset framing, all three are important and none can be left out. First, and most importantly, it is not about the words you use. It's what you think about the person in front of you. Trabian Shorter says you're on the right track if your first thought is something that affirms their spirit. Secondly, when you begin the discussions, the first words you utter, the first thing that needs to come out of your mouth, should be the aspirations and contributions of the people involved. And finally, you never leave out of the discussion what is keeping those people from realizing those aspirations and contributions. If you're not including the challenges, you're not asset framing. Let's take this photo as an example. In deficit framing, we would see this person and immediately categorize them as homeless. Because of what we read and see on the media, we might wonder about addiction, mental illness, other causes of being homeless, which might make us worry for our safety if we approach her. 
Because she looks so young, we might create a story about sexual abuse or trafficking and wonder if there was someone else near we should be fearful of. In asset framing, we would start in a different place. Lots of different places we could start, but we might start with, this is somebody who really loves her dog. We might go on to wonder how she ended up on the street or what we might do to help her, but to stress the important concept here, this is not an exercise about using the right words. It's an exercise in seeing this fellow human being as a person with aspirations and contributions, and then wondering what is obstructing those aspirations and contributions. The second tool to become a fierce guardian of belonging is called contextual creativity, which is described in Larry Graham's amazing book on moral injury. And it has four steps. Name it, frame it, enact, and revise. Confronted with a situation that places belonging at risk, you start by naming it. Not long ago, I was part of a committee that was planning a new space for everyone in our hospital community. It was going to have a coffee bar, welcoming furniture, and art on the wall. They had commissioned a local artist to paint a moss-filled oak tree like this one as a tribute to the land we were on and the history of the many peoples who had lived there. The proposed painting was beautiful, and we applauded the artist who was present with us at the meeting. And then one of the committee members, a black physician, spoke up. I see something very different when I look at that tree. We teach cultural competency to our students and we stress to them that no one can know what they don't know. Hearing these words from a beloved colleague was a profound lesson for me. No matter our intentions or how hard we try to understand, we will fall short. So we name it. The painting we have commissioned will be seen as a reminder of lynching by some in our community. The second step in contextual creativity is to change the frame. Framing what we name is the basis for changing the power of the past. Naming alone is not enough. When we frame what we name in actionable and benevolent terms, we begin to gain the power to resist, change, and heal. In other words, this is framing with new words, but in a way that automatically implies the benevolent change that will follow. When you reframe different understandings of what an oak tree can mean, it's clear you need a different image. Because belonging is fragile and needs constant attention, there is always a cycle. The process of naming, framing, and enacting is a continuous commitment to a better future, a cycle that we return to over and over again with care and intention. Let's look at this with the example I gave you earlier of my colleague who wasn't aware that women were introduced differently than men. So first we name it. We are failing to introduce women with their title. Then we reframe it in a way that sets up the benevolent action we hope for. Respect is important to feel you belong, and titles reflect respect. Then we enact. We as a group set the expectation that titles will be used all the time. 
because we want to show respect for our speakers. And when someone messes up, when they stumble, we don't ignore it. We correct them because we as a group have set this expectation. And then we ask periodically, how are we doing? Is there anything else we need to do to keep doing this well? The third tool in our belonging toolkit is storytelling, and specifically knowing and repeating the stories of our groups, which Owen Eastwood calls the story of us. As he explains, storytelling fuels the super strength of Homo sapiens, our ability to form tightly bound groups. Stories of us explain our shared identity and describe for us the type of person you need to be to be part of our tribe. We need to tell and retell our origin stories. We also need to add and amplify new stories that reinforce who we are as a team. Maybe we should institute best story of the week at Grand Rounds. Not just the usual academic accolades, but the story of the resident who paid for the single mother in front of them in the cafeteria, the intern who left the OR to go to the sim lab to practice for two hours to learn intracorporeal tying, or the faculty member who stayed by a bedside for hours to bear witness to the grief of a family. And finally, we need to recognize the unspoken story conveyed by the photos we have on our walls and other representations of our histories. Who is left out? What are you not seeing that others are seeing? We need to recognize that a wall with nothing but white men on it sends a message of belonging uncertainty to women and colleagues of colors. Be creative if you need to be. When the state of Texas put up a historical marker about J. Evitz Haley at West Texas A&M, the administration of the university responded with a second marker next to it, telling the other side of the story, which was that he ran for governor in 1956, two years after Brown versus the Board of Education, on a platform to keep Texas schools segregated. For those in leadership positions, this means that part of your job description is to be the storyteller in chief. And we've all had wonderful chiefs, like I was able to have with Dave Wesson, who serve that role. Again, from Eastwood, we look to our leaders to be the storyteller in chief and expect them to personify our tribal identity. We do not want our us story replaced by a leader's me story, a cult of personality, with the rest of us as supporting cast. The fourth tool is ritual, because rituals are and have always been an important part of embedding a deep sense of belonging. Think for a moment about your graduation from medical school steeped in tradition with regalia and reciting a version of the Hippocratic Oath. This is a ritual that made it clear. You weren't just graduating you are joining an unbroken chain of healers. Likewise, the convocation that took place on Monday is a ritual that acknowledges our place in the profession of surgery, a calling and a responsibility that is far more than just the work we do. In my experience, most of the time when a surgeon joins a new group, there's a dinner, 
there's introductions at grand rounds or other meetings, and that's pretty much it. What a missed opportunity. Why not create a ritual to share the aspirations and contributions of everyone already in the group and celebrate the gifts the new person is bringing to the group? The same is true for other major transitions. Yes, we have a cake in the office when someone gets a grant, is promoted, or is leaving. But how much more could we accomplish in terms of belonging if we created a more meaningful ritual around these moments of transition? A final thought on this. How many of us have sat in funerals listening to eulogies and stories and wished the loved one we were saying goodbye to had been able to hear those words? Create opportunities and rituals to say them now. And finally, if we are to create and sustain cultures of belonging, we must seek to measure what matters. It is a fact that our current healthcare system concentrates almost exclusively on financial measures of success. All of us want to be paid fairly. But if we were just interested in money, none of us would have chosen medicine as a career. What matters to us is not exclusively financial. It has become common practice in most institutions to report individual RVUs and benchmarks to every surgeon. In many cases, these are also shared in group, division, or department meetings. Surgeons are highly motivated people who love their work. This kind of productivity reporting is a corporate practice that reinforces the concept of individualism and psychologically puts surgeons in competition with each other. The same is true for battling for OR time, clinic slots, or office space, conflicts which are equally destructive to a sense of belonging. This, too, is the job of surgical leaders, to respond to the benchmarks of hospital administrators without agreeing to the tools that inadvertently destroy a sense of belonging among the surgeons they lead. We all know, as Albert Einstein said, that not everything that counts can be counted. How should we measure and honor the incredibly important work of educating future physicians and training future surgeons? How do we measure important research which will change the way we treat patients, especially when it's not supported by grant money? And what if what matters to an individual surgeon is a profound desire to give back to the community? Higgins, in her 2020 article, To Be Seen, Heard, and Valued, Strategies to Promote a Sense of Belonging for Women and Underrepresented in Medicine Physicians, said this. With the shift in physician workforce demographics comes new perspectives, career aspirations, and concepts of how to have a meaningful impact. Meaning and purpose may be spurred through efforts to give back to the community or provide outreach, such as mentoring or community-level leadership. One of the shining examples of this today is Dr. Ayla Stanford, one of my colleagues in pediatric surgery, who at the beginning of the COVID epidemic recognized an unmet need and developed an amazing program to provide COVID resources to the underserved black community in Philadelphia work that is now being expanded to other inequalities in care. This work is not likely to generate revenue, but it emphatically matters.
So let's, let me give you a summary and a few final thoughts. We spend some time thinking about belonging and ask specifically what does it mean to belong. We've realized that yes, creating a culture of belonging is the right thing to do. It is both professionally and ethically important. And we've considered both theoretical and practical ways we can become creators and fierce guardians of belonging. We considered the five things that disrupt belonging, the effects of social location, the binary of us and them, thinking we belong to an institution instead of a group, individualism, and power especially if it's malevolent. And I described five tools to help us all become creators and fierce guardians of belonging. Asset framing, contextual creativity, the story of us, rituals, and measuring what matters. The theme of this year's Clinical Congress is Surgeons Sowing Hope. So I will leave you with this final thought. It is a truth worth pondering that optimism is learned, but hope is a choice. So I challenge you, study and teach optimism so you can push back against anything that keeps us from creating teams where everyone feels they belong. But even more importantly, choose hope in your thinking, your actions, and your work so you can truly become a creator and fierce guardian of belonging, which is the best possible way to live and act like the ancestor you will be. Thank you so much for your attention and for the incredible honor of delivering this year's John J. Conley Lecture on Ethics and Philosophy. Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery podcast, brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org.